Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. These days, when most of us look up into the night sky, we don't see very much. Sure, there are maybe a few hundred stars visible, and if we're outside the reach of the light pollution of cities, we see more, even the faint white band of some of the Milky Way's billions of stars. We may pick out a constellation or two, while those who've studied a bit of astronomy see patterns all over the place. Now and again, you or I may look up there and wonder if there is any life out there in all that vast space around one of those faint white lights dotting the darkness. When Dr. Karen Oberg looks up at the sky, she sees more than just about anyone else on Earth. When she asks the question about the possibility of life somewhere out there, she knows what to look for and how to look for it. Dr. Oberg is professor of astronomy at Harvard University, where her research focuses on astrochemistry, and the processes of star and planet formation. Her expertise gives her a unique view on the composition of habitable planets, ones in which it would at least be possible for life as we know it to exist. Of course, all her work of looking way out there also bears tremendously on our understanding of what it means for us to have life here on this planet. While I'm sure it doesn't surprise anyone that in Dr. Oberg, Harvard boasts of one of the leading scholars in her field, what may surprise you is that she is a practicing Catholic who serves on the board of directors of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Today's show will be the first of two consecutive episodes with Dr. Oberg as part of a short series we are running on the relationship between science and religion. In our conversation, we'll move between her work some questions that many of us may have for someone with her expertise, and the story of her own faith journey of coming into the Catholic Church during her formative young adult years while already deeply engaged in serious scientific pursuits. Dr. Oberg, it's an honor to have you join us today. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. So you're an astrochemist, and I know what chemistry is, and I know chemistry is hard. So I'm guessing that putting astro in front of it only makes chemistry harder. And I was wondering if you could let the rest of us know what exactly astrochemistry is. Well, first I would say that your prejudice would be wrong. Oh. So actually when you take chemistry to space, it gets much simpler. And it gets much simpler because in space there's not that much stuff around <laughs> okay. between stars, which means that the kind of chemical reactions you can have is quite limited. So while here on Earth we have millions and billions of, of chemical compounds, known chemical compounds, uh, when you, we look in space, we know about 150 different really? chemical compounds. So it is actually simpler. But that being said... It's harder uh, to get your hands on it, though. It, it is more difficult to observe. Okay. So, so what astrochemistry is? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I already said it, but there is chemistry in space. Uh, that is, there is molecules, there, is, there are chemical reactions going on right now in the material between stars. Mm. And astrochemistry is the study of, of those reactions and how they affect things like star formation, plant formation, origins of life, mm. uh, whether there's life elsewhere. 
Very interesting. So in the space between stars, and we're talking now about mostly unimaginable distances for most people. So how do you even detect the chemical materials between stars? We are. I mean, these are places that are very far away. They're not places we'll, we can travel to or will be able to travel to uh, any time in the, the near future. Right. So, so I guess to take a step back, when we're thinking about the solar system, which is still a, a large, large place, uh, within the solar system, we can still go to other planets. We can send rockets, spaceships there and take samples, potentially bring them back and see what's there. But when we're talking about the space between stars, we are at the minimum talking about things that are hundreds of light years away, the mm -hmm. things we're studying. And there, you just can't go there. So the only thing you can do is to look at the light. Uh, that's coming from these chemicals. So what we do is called spectroscopy. So it means the interpretation uh, of the light signal that we get from these chemicals. And we use big telescopes and to detect variations these signals. In, in the light. That's right. So just as when we look at things around us here on Earth, uh, all chemicals have colors. Mm -hmm. Well, some of them don't really have colors that we can see. Water is colorless, but it has a color when you go to other wavelengths away from the visible. So at infrared wavelengths, uh, water has a very clear color or signal that we can pick up. Very interesting. Something that astronomers have really been trying to detect recently are exoplanets. So these are planets that orbit around uh, stars other than our own sun. What, first of all, like how do astronomers detect exoplanets? Because they're very difficult to detect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been a revolution in astronomy mm -hmm. since the first detection of a planet around another star about 20 years ago. Uh, just as with chemicals, uh, these planets are far away. Mm -hmm. So again, we can't go there to, to detect them. Uh, and that there are multiple, more or less indirect ways that we can see them. The simplest one, and it's also the one that's been used to detect the most exoplanets, is that when, uh, if we are in the right geometry, such that the planet passes between us and their host star, right. uh, we can see a small dip in the luminosity of the star as the exoplanet passes in front of it. And the bigger the planet, the bigger the dip. So these are the first so, ones we've seen. Uh, so they were actually not the very first, is but it right? is the, the technique that's been used to detect the most. Mm. And it's the most straightforward sure. in some way. Sure. There is a, another technique, which was the one that about 20 years ago was used to discover the first exoplanet, okay. uh, which makes use of the, the fact, and some of the listeners might remember this from high school physics, uh, that when you have uh, a planet orbiting a star or a planet orbiting the sun, um, it's not actually completely correct that the planet is orbiting the sun. Rather, both the planet and the sun, in the case of our solar system, are orbiting the center of gravity or the center mm -hmm. of mass. Uh, and this is also true for exoplanetary system. So that means that you can think about the planet as tugging a bit on their star. Yeah. Uh, and we can see this tugging because it causes a slight, subtle uh, velocity change in, in the star as observed from us. And when you get the change in velocity, you can use the 
Doppler effect to see uh, this change in, in velocity will cause a change in color. Mm -hmm. So this is most, uh, most people are familiar with the Doppler effect uh, from the sirens from ambulances or police cars that you hear a different frequency or a different pitch uh, mm -hmm. when the ambulance is coming uh, towards you or going away from you. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing the same thing with stars. When the planet is tugging on the stars, it's moving towards us, uh, we see a different color of light compared to when the star is going away from us. Wow. And this is how the first exoplanets uh, were discovered. And it's about how a few hundred exoplanets have been discovered using that technique. Fascinating. So for you and your work, what are your interests about these exoplanets? So fundamentally, I am interested in uh, two questions. Mm -hmm. One is understanding our own origins. So origins of life here on Earth and the origins of the solar system. Mm -hmm. So how, why there is an Earth and then how this planet became a living planet. And then on the other hand, I am really interested in is there life elsewhere? Um, what can we, how can we use our knowledge about how planets form, how many exoplanets there are there to make educated guesses and eventually come up with scientific theories uh -huh. uh, on extraterrestrial life yeah. and uh, how, how prevalent it is in the universe. So you're curious about the same things that many of us are curious about. We just Ab don't know how to try to answer that question. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I think that goes for many scientists, uh -huh. actually, that at the bottom you will find this it's a very fundamental curiosities about how the world works, why, why we're here, how it all started. And then we just apply more and more sophisticated tools to answer those questions. Excellent. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We are talking to Dr. Karen Oberg, professor of astronomy at Harvard University and a board member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Now, let's go back to this question about is there life elsewhere, which everybody wants to ask. And I'm sure you get asked that all the time. But uh, maybe there's a preliminary question to that. And it would seem that in order for there to be life elsewhere, you'd have to have, we would imagine, a planet that's habitable. How what would classify a planet as habitable, whether or not there's life there? That's right. And I mean, I think in general, when we go back to what I just said, that scientists are often driven by the same curiosities mm -hmm. as non-scientists. But then in some sense, the, the job of the scientist is to break down those big questions into smaller, more precise questions that you can then go out and measure. Right. So this would be a typical example where uh, we are really interested in finding extraterrestrials. Uh, but one of the questions that we think we can begin to answer now is that of all these uh, planets that have been found out in space, how many of them do we think could sustain life? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a much more specific, uh, specific question. Um, we do indeed think you need a planet uh, for life. And we think you need actually a very specific kind of planet uh, for life. That it's not by accident that in the solar system, the Earth, for all that we know, uh, is the only living planet. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we, th uh, we think you need is water. Uh, water here on Earth is obviously very important. Um, so it might seem like we're being unnecessarily, I guess, Earth-centric by thinking about water elsewhere as well. But 
uh, the reason we think water uh, is going to be one of the, the key ingredients is not actually um, because of how life works here on Earth, but it's really because of chemistry. Mm. So we think that the ordinance of life here on Earth was preceded by a more and more complex chemistry. And then somehow that complex chemistry transitioned into simple biology. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we imagined happened here. And if you want to have um, a, a complex, interesting chemistry, you need to bring a lot of different substances in relation to one another, in connection with one another, within a single solvent. Mm -hmm. And of all the solvents we know, water is the best one. Okay. So, so we need water. And we need that water to be liquid, which means the planet cannot be too hot and it cannot be too cold. Okay. It must reside in the so-called habitable zone where you can sustain liquid water. Mm -hmm. And then the third ingredient is that you need some of those different chemical compounds to be there to actually get this chemistry started. So different kinds of organic molecules. So I think those are the minimum requirements that is needed for an origins of life on the planet. Okay. What are you seeing in some of these exoplanets? I know that's a, that's a lot to look for. And I imagine in the first glimpse of the first uh, hundred glimpses, you don't see all of the things you need to see. But what are you seeing? That's right. So currently, we can do a couple of things with in exoplanet science. We can tell that they're there. <laughs> and we can tell that pretty much every star has, has a planet. Okay. So that's I mean, There's that's no stars awesome. out there just by themselves. They, they all have something orbiting around them as far as you can see. So we can't see all kinds of planets around stars. Right. So this is a statistical argument. Okay. But somewhere between 50 and 100% of stars have planets around them. Okay. So it's basically all but, of them. Oh, sure. Let's round up. Yeah, let's round up. <laughs> uh, so we know that. We can also tell where the planet is. So whether it is sitting in this so-called habitable zone where you can maintain liquid water. Okay. And there it's fewer than 100%, probably somewhere between 1% and 10% of stars have a planet. 1% and 10%. Between 1% and 10%. So this is a harder statistic right, right. to observe. And those are the ones in the habitable zone. That's the right, right distance from the star. That would still give us something like 1 billion planets in our galaxy okay. that are habitable. So we're still we're still You're good. not running out we're of still things good. to look at then. Okay. Now, we cannot directly see what kind of chemistry is on these planets mm -hmm. yet. We can for the biggest planets, like the Jupiter-sized planets. Mm -hmm. We can tell that many of them have things like water, methane, CO2, basically the same things as we see in our solar system. Mm -hmm. But for the Earth-sized planets, we will need a new, uh, new generation of telescopes to go after their composition. Very good. But it doesn't stop there. It, oh, there's more. <laughs> there's more. more. So we can still say something about the probability mm -hmm. of them having water and organics. And we can tell that by observing the conditions uh, within which these planets form. Mm -hmm. And that we can do with current telescopes. And we can, for example, say that water is extremely abundant. So these planets are very likely to have water. We can also say that organic molecules are very abundant uh, in the material that these planets are assembling from. Mm -hmm. So they're also very likely uh, to have a rich organic chemistry. So, I mean, it's going to take some time before we see it, but already we can 
say that the probabilities are looking very good. Okay, so a lot of promising data that a lot more to follow up on. Absolutely. What do you think, this is maybe taking a little bit outside of what you observe and what you can study, but what do you think people are interested in or worried about related to this question of finding life elsewhere in whatever form it might be, bacteria or uh, all the way up to humanoid type life? Yeah, let's start with bacteria or other even simpler uh, life forms. I have not heard anyone who is really that concerned uh, about that. Um, Scientists are really excited also about that because it would tell us something about the origins of life. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a scientific uh, hypothesis um, on how life originated here on Earth. As I said, you start with a simple chemistry. uh, You somehow evolve into more complex chemistry. Uh, and at some point, you transition to a system that has the function of a living system, mm-hmm. and you call it life. Uh, we do not know how that transition happened here on Earth, or even most of the steps leading up to that. So finding even simple life somewhere else would be scientifically super exciting. It would really tell us something about our own origins. I think that where maybe some of the anxiety comes in, especially for people with a religious uh, background or religious faith uh, is when we're talking about intelligent mm-hmm. extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there we are touching upon questions of our own uniqueness, our relationship with God, um, what the incarnation really did for mm-hmm. us, how we are saved through the incarnation, uh, how important it was that Jesus was of the same blood as us for mm-hmm. this salvation to be uh, effective, uh, whether there was one incarnation, whether it could be multiple incarnations, and then was our incarnation really as cosmically significant as we tend to think of it, mm-hmm. and as scripture and this Catholic teaching um, seems to to state. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where all uh, sort of maybe perhaps the anxiety comes in. I think for just life or sort of non-rational life. I see only excitement. You see only excitement. Great. One of the ways I've heard that question asked, it's the title of a book, is Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial, right? This is by the, the astronomer at the Vatican, Brother Guy. That's, that's right. And uh, if I remember correctly, his answer was yes. <laughs> but in some ways, it's a similar kind of question to what you find in the bottom of the ocean, which we haven't even, you know, not even the bottom, like anywhere in the ocean, many forms of life that we perhaps haven't even found yet. Um, I think it is somewhat different when we're talking about life here on Earth. um, First of all, we think there is a common ancestor for all life here on on Earth. So Mm -hmm. it it certainly reveals something about, you know, some beauty that God wants to show that is not shown by any other creatures. Mm -hmm. It's it's still important. It can tell us something about evolution, but it doesn't really tell us about the origins of life. And I don't expect anyone is worried about finding rational fish <laughs> down at 10,000 feet. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a general anxiety. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I think when we're talking about extraterrestrial life, the, both of those uh, are there, both both the extra knowledge and the potential of finding other rational beings. Excellent way to put it. You're listening to Church Life today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to Dr. Karen Oberg, professor of astronomy at Harvard University, where she's also the head of the Oberg Astrochemistry Lab. 
All, alongside your scientific research, you're also quite interested in this relationship between science and religion, which you were just touching on here. In a recent interview, we had a chance to talk with your uh, colleague from the University of Delaware, Dr. Stephen Barr, uh, with whom you uh, are a board member in the Society of Catholic Scientists. Um, so I, I wonder if I could just ask you a few questions about, you know, at the intersection of, of science and religion here. Absolutely. Um, from your understanding, because you're talking to people uh, in this area quite a lot um, and giving uh, something of an understanding of the scientific origin of life on Earth, what have you learned about or how have you uh, talked about the relationship between that scientific origin and the biblical doctrine of creation? Yeah, so I have never seen any conflict between the two. I mm. mean, I guess it's a starting point. So for me, it's been more of an intellectual exercise to find out what the perceived conflicts are and come up with answers to them than addressing anything that um, I found myself to be to be troubling. Okay. So I was a scientist before I was a Catholic, uh -huh. and that was in no way a hurdle from entering into, into the church. Really? This seems to go in the opposite direction of the typical narrative, right? Like the deeper you get into science, it's, it's assumed that you would fall away from faith, but you found no obstacle. I found no obstacle, but also it wasn't really science that led me mm -hmm. to God. Uh, I think the same obsession for truth led me to God as led me to a scientific career, but there's sort of parallel ob obsessions with, okay. with truth. Uh, uh, we can come back to that, I guess, in, in, a, in, a, in a minute, sure. but to, to go back to the, the science and religion uh -huh. uh, question, I think a lot of the problem and where, where people ask me the question where they're coming from is that they're seeing uh, God and natural causes as in competition with one another. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to, and if you have that, you get a better and better scientific explanation, you seem to have less and less need of God. Or if you're going to be faithful to God, you have to sort of close your mind to some of the scientific discover discoveries or be anxious about some of the scientific discoveries. I don't think that goes very well with a traditional Catholic understanding uh, of creation where God is indeed the cause of everything. Mm -hmm. But he has given creation this wonderful dignity of uh, in some sense causing its own unfolding. Uh, so even though God is the cause of everything, we can still talk about creation of new structures, of life emerging and the like through natural causes without having that be in the competition with the, with the ultimate cause that is God. There's sort of side by side or underpinning these, uh, these natural causes. Um, that was how I thought about it, I think, intuitively when mm -hmm. I started uh, thinking about Christianity. Um, and I have found no reason to, to leave that way of thinking it behind. Really beautifully said. I love what you said, especially at the beginning, that the conflict isn't isn't just obviously there. And I think maybe that's the first place where we typically err is that we think the conflict is just inherent. And now we have to try and deal with it. But you, as I heard you saying it, you have to listen to what the perceived conflicts are and then respond to those because it isn't actually just apparent that there are conflicts. Absolutely. As I said, I think there, there's nothing in our tradition uh, that should teach us that there is. If anything, I mean, there are, of course, a couple of well-publicized conflicts. Sure. 
the fact that there's only one or two that we keep going back to should ring a bell that maybe those are the exceptions mm. rather than sort of the main main story. Mm-hmm. Could you take us through one of those and maybe... I mean, the Galileo affair is the obvious one. Since I'm an astronomer, I'll I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, Which I think um, part of what happened there is that theologians in the church uh, married some of their theology to an Aristotelian physics. Mm -hmm. And as the more and more evidence was pointing to that the Aristotelian physics was not a good explanation of the cosmos, they felt that some of their theology was would was threatened together with uh, with the Aristotelian physics, and therefore became quite defensive. And I think that is at the heart of the Galilea affair. I think there are other examples more recently where the it has gone in the opposite way, where you have had uh, materialist uh, sort of scientism kind of prejudices mm-hmm. that have inhibited scientific progress, most notably the uh, Big Bang theory, which first uh, came into being in the mind of a Catholic priest mm-hmm. and uh, was was not really celebrated uh, when it was first presented because it went against uh, their perceived metaphysics and physics of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. So, And many people don't even know that fact that it first was conceived of by a Catholic priest, the Big Bang Theory, yeah. Yeah, to, to sort of follow that narrative that you're playing out for us. Well, we've actually come to the end of our time, and I feel like we have so much more to talk about. So perhaps we'll have to have a sequel to this conversation if you'd be open to that in the future. I'd be happy to. That would be great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We've been speaking with Dr. Karen Oberg of Harvard University on the Faculty of Astronomy there, where she also leads the Oberg Astrochemistry Lab, and she serves as a board member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Thank you, Dr. Oberg, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. 